Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who restores. We see, Lord, when your son was here. That the blind received their sight. The lame walked. The deaf were made to hear. Broken lives were made whole. And Lord, that's what you do. You bring restoration to broken things. You fix our messes. And Lord, we thank you for that. That you even go to great lengths to bring us back to wholeness and wellness and rightness with you. And we see that, Lord, in our text here tonight. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts in a special way this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Scriptures declare that the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces the very core and innermost parts of the heart. It divides between the joints and the marrow. It has a way of speaking to us powerfully, deeply, even in ways that sometimes we maybe wouldn't think. For instance, an elderly woman had just returned to her home from an evening of church services when she was startled by an intruder. She caught the man in the act of robbing her home of its valuables, and she yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38. Now, Acts 2.38 reads, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. But that's not what she said. She just said, Stop! Acts 2.38. And the burglar stopped in his tracks. The woman calmly called the police and explained what she had done. And as the officer cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, why, why did you just stand there? All the lady did was yell a scripture at you. Scripture, replied the burglar. She said she had an axe in 238s. <laughs> I love that. He was stopped in his tracks. That's where we find David here in our passage tonight, stopped in his tracks. Now, you recall in our previous study, which has been a couple weeks now, that we left David in a bad spot, one that is going to get worse before it gets better. You recall that David has a low spot. He comes to a low time. He comes to this place in his walk where he's just fed up with Saul chasing him. He thinks that there's no hope. And so what does he do? He once again, second time now, runs to the Philistines. He goes to Achish, the king of the Philistines, and, and the Philistines, that, that, that would be equivalent to you and I running to the world. And that's what he does. He runs there to the world and he's pretending there. He offers himself to be Achish's servant. Now what happens is Achish receives David and his 600 men and their families there into the Philistine household, if you would. 
He becomes a welcome guy in their areas. He even gives them his own city, Ziglag, where he and his men go and, and they, they are living and they're, they're keeping, you know, house there with all their families and they have this nice little community going on. And what, what David is doing is he's going out and he's conducting these military raids, supposedly for the Philistines. He comes back and Achish says, where have you been today? And he says, Oh, I've been out raiding the northern plains of Israel. And, and, and he's, you know, trying to make Achish think that he's been attacking his own people. When in reality, what David has been doing is going out and attacking the friends of the Philistines. But to cover his tracks, he and his men go in and they absolutely massacre everybody. No one is left alive in any of the towns, in any of the villages that they have been going into. And I think that in some way, David thinks that, you know, he's justifying his dwelling in the camp of the enemy with these battles. So he and his men and their families are dwelling there in Ziglag. And it's they, they live in this state, living in the, the, the land of the Philistines, living in the world, if you would, for 16 months. And I want you to note that during this time, these 16 months, David, he writes no psalms. We have no record of any prayers being offered. It's a dark time. It's a dry time in his life and in his walk with the Lord because it's a time when he is really running from God. There's no fellowship with God in David's life during this time. Now David is about to do the unthinkable. That's where we pick it up in chapter 28. It says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. And so David said to Achish, surely, you know what your servant can do. You know what I'm capable of, he says. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Here we see the Philistines are now lining up to go out and fight against the people of God, to fight against the people of Israel. And David here is lining up with them. He's going out to do battle with the very people, think about it, that he has been destined to lead. He's going out to fight against the people of God, the very people that he has been called by God to serve. But what we're going to see here is how the Lord stops David in his tracks. But before we do, there's a little break in this story and our focus shifts once again to King Saul. And we pick it up here in verse three of chapter 28. Now, Samuel had died. I think that's a significant uh, aspect here to the story. Samuel was the voice of God. He was the prophet. Now he's dead. And all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now, that was proper. According to Leviticus chapter 19, God had commended. He had commissioned the people to put away the witches and the mediums, the sorcerists and the spiritists to put them out of the land. And so Saul does a good thing here. But then it says, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunan. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Saul's at this place now where inside he's thinking, man, what am I going to do? I'm not in a good place with God. Samuel, the prophet, is nowhere to be. You know, he's dead now. He's not on the scene. What am I going to do? 
And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. So every means that Saul is thinking to, to hear from the Lord. You remember the Urim and the Thummim were, were the two stones that they would, the priests would wear that they would sometimes use to try to decipher and figure out the, 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 the voice and will of God. And nothing is working here for Saul. So in verse seven, it says, then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. This lady has been commonly called the witch of Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and, and he went and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. And then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Saul, who put the wizards and the mediums and the spiritists and the witches out of the land, now he asks for a witch. He asks for a medium. Now, some might be prone to read this and think, well, you know, give Saul a break. I mean, come on. He sought the Lord and, and, and God didn't answer him. But I don't buy that. And here's why. Keep your place here and turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. A couple books to your right. 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Find verse 13. 1 Chronicles 10, 13. Here's what it says. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. Check out verse 14. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, this says here that Saul did not inquire of the Lord. Does this contradict 1 Samuel 28, verse 6? I don't think so. In actuality, I think that it gives insight into it. It, it shows us that you can seemingly inquire of the Lord, but do so in an insincere way that really isn't inquiring of the Lord at all. And that's what I think Saul does here. Now, we can be guilty of this as well. There, there, there can be those who say, you know, I, I prayed about it, but man, God just didn't answer. And so I just went out and did this. I prayed about it, but I didn't know what to do. Well, I ask you, how long did you pray? How long did you wait? How much did you ask? The Bible says that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We, we read in the Gospels where, where Jesus tells the parable of the guy who's you know coming to the house late in the night, needs some food from his neighbor because some visitors have come unexpectedly. And he's knocking on the door of the guy's house. But the guy's saying, hey, man, my family, we're all asleep. We're in bed. We're not getting up. Go somewhere else. And it says the guy just kept knocking and knocking and knocking. And finally, because of his persistence, he got up and he gave the guy what he wanted. And Jesus uses that parable to teach us to be persistent in praying to the Lord and crying out to him. 
How long did you pray? Did you fast? Were you willing? And I think this is the big thing as well when it comes to inquiring of the Lord is are we really willing to hear what God is going to say to us? In other words, sometimes we can inquire of the Lord. And if God's not saying what we don't want him, you know, what we, what we want him to say, if he's saying something else, it's like, you know, we're not listening. It's like we've got our radar tuned into one frequency and that frequency is what we want to hear. And if God is saying something else, it's like, you know, I, I just don't hear it. God's not talking to me. Well, he is. You're just not listening because he's not saying what you want to hear. And we can be as guilty of that as well. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we have prayed when there's no fervency and no intensity in our prayers at all. It would almost appear from this that Saul really, really wanted to seek out the medium. Turn back over to 1 Samuel 28. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Watch and see what happens. It says, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. And so he said to her, what is his form? And, and she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. And now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Samuel answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that that you should reveal to me what I should do. And then Samuel said, so why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, they'll be dead. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have kept, I have put my life in my hands and heed the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. And so his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice. And then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked the unleavened bread from it. And so she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And then they arose and they went away that night. Here we come to one of the, the most debated passages in all of Scripture. And the big question that people ask is, 
was this really Samuel? Was this really Samuel? On the one hand, the woman's profession was absolutely forbidden by the Lord and by the king. Therefore, many believe that this could not have been Samuel summoned from the dead. Matthew Henry says that God permitted the devil to answer the request so that those who receive not the love of the truth might be given up to strong delusion. And in reality, that that's what seances are all about. You know, people today, they go to seances and they want to call up, you know, Uncle Freddy and and uh, no offense, Fred, but they want to call up, you know, Uncle Fred or, or, or somebody like that. And and what, what happens? I mean, you know, there's something that appears, a voice that speaks. But but no doubt these are demonic impersonators is what's happening there. Demons that are disguising themselves. The Bible says that the the devil can disguise himself as an angel of light, and and that's what's happening. Demonic spirits coming, impersonating, you know, some loved one. And it's interesting because so often the message is always the same. Hey, I'm in a good place, even though they weren't Christians, they didn't lead a godly life. I'm in a good place. Everything's good. Things are wonderful, and they give this false hope to their loved one. That's what the devil is all about, deceiving in that type of way. And so some believe that's what was happening here, that this was a demon disguising himself as Samuel and delivering this message. The problem, though, is that the message was absolutely true. Everything that this spirit said happened. And we know that the devil isn't like God in the sense that he doesn't have foreknowledge. He can't see things before they happen the way that God does. And, and here, this is almost a prophetic type of thing. So there, because of that, there are others who believe that since this aberration was absolutely true, and, and since this happened before this medium performed her rituals, and that she herself was shocked by the appearance of Samuel, and that the predictions were confidently and accurately made. There are some who believe that this was indeed Samuel. And that what happened was that God in his sovereignty on this one occasion allowed someone who had died to speak from the dead. Now, I personally believe that that's possible based on what was said by the Spirit. I could go either way. In reality, we're not going to find out until eternity. We won't know for sure what actually happened here. But what I think is extra sad is that here's Saul. And we see that Saul is in this progression or digression. We see the demise of Saul here. We first met him in chapter 9 as this humble man. This man who was filled anointed with the spirit of, of, of God. He was called by God to lead the people. His God's anointing was on his life. But here we see our last picture is one of a man who has so hardened his heart against the Lord that he's seeking after and consulting with a witch. Listen, this is always the progression of sin. It always gets worse. It always, if, if a person is in a place where they are rebelling against the Lord, if they are living in a place of sin, note this, understand this, it always gets darker. 
it always grows worse. There's a downward spiral to sin, a downward spiral into darkness, and it's a darkness that gets darker with each passing day. And that's what we see here happening to Saul. He hardens his heart against the Lord and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And here we see the last picture of this guy, this man who who could have left a good legacy. But instead, we see this horrible picture of him consulting with mediums. As we move now into chapter 29, we come back to David in the land of the Philistines. And here he is. He's ready to go to war. Now, again, during this period of David's life, there was no record of him writing any Psalms or having any real communion with God. And to a certain extent, David has turned his back on God. But listen, listen close. God would not turn his back on David. As we come to chapter 29, we see the graciousness of God in bringing back his wayward servant. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Apek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. The Philistines gathered to fight against Israel. And David is in this place where he thought that he would never be lined up with the enemy to fight against the people of God. But you know, this is often the case with sin. When we backslide, we turn away from the, when we turn away from the things of God, we can often find ourselves in some place that we never thought we never could have dreamed that that's where we would be. I've often had people tell me who have ended up in this type of place. I don't even know how I got there. I don't even understand how this happened. It's like one day I was here and then all of a sudden I made a couple wrong decisions. And the next thing I know is, is I'm here. How did this happen? That's where we find David here. But it's here that we see that the Lord is going to intervene. That he's going to get David out of a very disastrous situation because God is still on the throne and he will not let go of David so easily. We pick it up in verse three. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days and or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. In other words, go back to Ziglag and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary for with What could he reconcile him to his master if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So here we see the leaders of the Philistines. They looked at David and his men and they're like, hey, what are these guys doing here? They aren't one of us. They're not a part of us. They're they're Hebrews. They worship another God and and they live in, in another land that God has promised to them. We don't belong together. 
That's basically what these guys are saying here. Now, here's what I want you to know. The Philistine leaders could see what David was blinded to. David had started to think and act like a Philistine, so much so that he was ready to fight with them against the people of God. But the Philistine leaders could see that this wasn't right. David really wasn't one of them. You know, it was F.B. Meyer who said this. It's a terrible or it's very terrible when the children of the world have a higher sense of Christian morality and rightness than the Christians themselves and say to one another, what are they doing here? He said, that's a terrible thing. When the world looks at a Christian in some place where in the world's eyes that they shouldn't be and they look at him and go, what are they doing here? What are they doing here in that place? That's something that we often forget. Unbelievers have certain expectations of Christians. If you are a Christian in business, unbelievers, you have that fish on your check, you have that fish on your car, you have that that fish or that dove on your logo, they know that you're a Christian. They expect you to be honest. They expect you to be good. They expect you to be true to your word. That's what they, they have these expectations of us. And rightfully so, because the name Christian, it means Christ-like. It means a follower of Christ. And so we're to do business in that type of way. And so the, the, the people in the world, they have these expectations of us. But it's interesting when somebody in the world or somebody who's an unbeliever, when they look at us and they start wondering, man, why are they doing that? I thought they were a Christian. Why are they acting like that? Why are they in that place? I thought that they were a Christian. I remember when I was uh, in high school and I was playing baseball, I was very vocal about my faith and I was in, in inviting my senior year of high school friends on my team to come you know, to church with me and to come to youth group and, and, and that type of thing. And some of them did. And there was this one guy that I was working on, Manny was his name, and, and he was just this hard you know, guy and, and, and he was kind of a smart aleck kind of guy. And, and we had this game. Where we were playing and, and, uh, I ended up getting frustrated over, um, I ain't getting thrown out in a real close call at first base. And I ended up taking my helmet off and I threw it against the fence. Well, the next day at practice, you know, no one, when I did that, no one said a word and, you know, they kind of just, Gave me space when I came back to the, you know, dugout. But the next day at practice, we're playing catch warming up. And, and Manny says, I can't believe that you did that. He says, that just, it just crushed me. I thought you were a Christian. And as soon as he said that, it was like, oh, you know, just a knife to my heart, you know, type of a thing. But, but it was a good lesson because he was saying, look, I, 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 I had expectations for you. And I failed in those expectations. The princes of the Philistines come declaring what David should have known all along. He doesn't belong with us. Now, at first, Achish defends David. Look at verse three again. David has been with me and I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Now, think about this. To hear an ungodly ruler say such a thing should have been a great wake up call to David. It would be as if an ungodly coworker insisted to other coworkers when you were at the a party or showing up at the strip joint or whatever it might be, hey, you know, he's okay. You know, he's not really a Christian. You know, that's kind of the idea here. That's kind of what's happening here. 
In all of this, though, God was speaking to David. But David, at this point, he's still not listening. The Philistines' princes obviously didn't trust David and probably went away thinking as, as Achish ends up saying to David, okay, look, man, you, you can't come. And they probably thought, man, we got rid of that stupid Hebrew. But in actuality, they were merely instruments in the hands of God, in the hands of the Lord to get David where the Lord wanted him all along. And that's what we're going to see. We pick it up in verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have I, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may go, not go and fight against the, the enemies of my Lord, the King? David, what are you saying? And then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light depart. David appeals to Achish. What have I done? He says, what have I done? David genuinely seems disappointed here. I mean, this just is mind boggling. He's going to go into battle against his own people. And he's like, man, I really wanted to go fight. He's upset. Also that he caused the princes of the Philistines to be displeased with him. Is this the same David who fought Goliath? Could you imagine somebody coming to David when he was marching out into the Valley of Elah to go up against Goliath and say, you know, David, I really don't think you should go out and take down that big giant who's defying the armies of the living God because the, the princes of the Philistines might be displeased. Can you imagine that? I think David would have been like, you know, displeased the Philistines. If I ever stop displeasing them, kill me, you know. He didn't care, but here he's so twisted. All of that, the victory in the Valley of Elah, it's a distant memory at this particular time because of his backsliding and because of his compromise, David is more concerned at this point in his life with the fear of man than he is with the fear of God. But here again, we see the grace of God. In the midst of all of this, we see the hand of God at work in David's life, keeping him from doing something that he would really, really regret. David's heart is in a bad place, but God hasn't abandoned him. We should praise God for the times that God has kept us from sin. The times that God in his faithfulness has has kept us from going into sin. I remember hearing a Christian pastor talking about the fact that when before he, you know, came to the Lord, that he actually was, uh, you know, very heavy drinker. 
And during a low point in, in his ministry, he was actually in, a, in another place, kind of an obscure place where no one really knew him. And he was traveling back from, from uh, speaking somewhere. And he decided, he was just kind of depressed that he was going to go into this liquor store and get a beer. And he, so he walks in and he's there at the counter and he's, you know, buying this, uh, you know, whatever it is of, of beer. And one of his best friends comes walking in. Now, his best friend didn't live there. He lived, you know, 100 miles away from there, but he just happened to be there, you know? And it was like that God was just saying, look, you know, this is going to be a bad thing. This is going to start you down a bad path, and I'm going to protect you. And he brings his friend there. God, so often, think about the times, I can think about many times in my life where God went through incredible measures to keep me from sin. That's what's happening here. We pick it up in verse 11. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David returns to Ziglag and the Philistine armies, they go up to prepare to meet King Saul. Now, all of this, all that's happened here in this chapter should have awakened David. He should have saw God's hand in all of this, but he didn't. So now God is really going to get David's attention. But at what price? What is it going to take to bring David around? What is it going to take to open up his eyes? But know this, because God loves David so much, because he wants him to be restored, God will do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. We pick it up in verse 30, or chapter 30 of verse 1. Now it happened... When David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day and the Amalekites had invaded or that the Amalekites had invaded the south of Ziglag and attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were with them from the small to the great. And they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. And so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam and the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite had been taken. And now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. So David and his men, and his men come here and they, they left their families unguarded and unprotected in their compromise to go and join forces with the Philistine armies to fight against the people of God. And upon their return, they find a disaster. Their city is burned down, their homes are in ruins, and their families are gone. Listen, that usually is what happens when people get involved with sin and compromise. It leaves a family in ruins. That's what happens. Houses are divided, families taken captive by the enemy. When David and his men come upon this scene, and I want you to picture this in your mind. Here's David with 600 of the gnarliest 
men in all of Israel. I mean, they're all mini Rambos, you know. I mean, they got the bandanas on their heads and, you know, full day's growth and, 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 and just, you know, they're, they're gnarly looking guys. These were mighty men. We'll, we'll learn later that many of them, the mighty men of valor. David's mighty. These guys are gnarly guys and they begin to weep until it says that they had no power within them left to cry. They wept, in other words, until they had no more strength to weep. Picture this. Picture these guys weeping, broken, at this place where their hearts are just just taken away from them. They're sobbing uncontrollably. These men are broken. Why? Because of the loss of their families. The loss of their families. And often, this is what it takes to break a man's pride. I have seen this very thing here. Guys that I've never seen shed a tear, sit in an office over here and weep uncontrollably. Because their sin has resulted in them losing their family. Because their sin has resulted in in them being torn from the ones that they love. Weeping until they could weep no more. I've seen too many men go down this road of compromise and a double life who weren't broken until their families were ruined. That's what it takes here for David to finally come to his senses. Now, when a man finds himself in that particular place, what they do at that particular point makes all the difference in the world. It's a crossroads. It makes the difference on on what's going to happen. Which way is it going to turn? Will they choose the pathway that will result in hope of restoration? Or will they continue on the one that leads to further death and despair? Now, listen, the tendency of some people who are confronted like this with the results of their sin is to turn inward and they get bitter. They get bitter at themselves, mad at themselves. How could I do this? And they're all upset and they hate themselves and they just kind of want to do themselves in or they get bitter at God. I thought you were forgiving. It wasn't that bad and they start to make excuses. Or sometimes they even get bitter at those who hurt them. The people who left them. And they start to get bitter. And that root of bitterness permeates the soil of their hearts. And that bitterness begins to spread like a poison throughout their whole being. And subconsciously, they make this pact with themselves. And they start to get even harder where they say that I'm never going to get hurt like this again. And they turn themselves off to people. They turn themselves off to the Lord. They don't want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to Pastor Howard. They don't want to talk to Pastor Steve. And it's just like, I'm done. All because of bitterness. That path leads to death. Those men, those women will go to their graves. Bitter, cantankerous individuals who make everyone's life around them miserable. That's one pathway. Some turn inward. Others turn outward. They look for someone to blame. 
They want to look for someone else and say, I'm in this mess. It's not my fault. It's this person's fault or it's that person's fault. And they're looking for someone to get mad at, someone to blame. That's what David's men do. They look at this situation and they turn at David. And we see in verse six, they're ready to stone him to death. This is all your fault when they willingly went with him down into the land of the Philistines. They could have said, David, you're going to the Philistines. We're not going. That's enemy territory. But they willingly followed David into his sin. But this whole whole trait or tendency to want to blame someone else, it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes back to Adam. Remember Adam? God came and said, Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to? And what did Adam say? And it was the woman that you gave me. It's all her fault and your fault. You know, it's not my fault. And men have been doing that ever since. Looking for someone to blame. Listen. The right path, the beginning place, is to take responsibility for our own actions. Some turn within and get bitter. Some turn without, looking for someone to blame. But the wise man, the wise woman, is one who turns to the Lord. Now listen, it took 16 months. It took a year and a half. It took a severe tragedy, but that's what David finally does. Look at the end of verse 6. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Listen, this is what matters most. Listen, really close. We're almost done. When you are brought face to face with your sin, when the Lord gives you the wake-up call and you realize that you've been out in left field, when, when the Lord comes and gets your attention and says, you know what, you're going down a wrong path. When you've done maybe even that which has has caused destruction in a family, in a relationship, in a friendship. And it's all the result of your wrong choices. It's all the result of, of your sin. Here's what is first and foremost priority. It's your relationship with God. It's getting that right first. That's what David does here. He strengthens himself in the Lord. David's heart here is in this place where first and foremost, he needs to get right with the Lord. Not, listen, not. The first and foremost priority is not to recover your family. It's not to restore the lost friendship. That's secondary. It starts with you and the Lord. That's where it has to start. And so often, that's the mistake that people make. I've seen a lot of people, quote unquote, come back to the Lord with this motivation. I need to get right with God because I need my family back. I need to get right with God because I need her back. I need to get right with God because I need my kids back. I need to get right with God because I need my job back, whatever it might be. No, you need to get right with God because you're not right with God. That's first and foremost. And whatever happens after that is up to him as you patiently seek him. But you have to seek the Lord because that's what he's made you for. That's what he's called you. That's first and foremost on the equation. Let God deal with the rest. David strengthens himself here in the Lord. The Bible says that godly sorrow results in repentance, a change of mind. Too often, 
We see a lot of tears, a lot of sorrow. It's like, oh, I messed this up. But there's no repentance. There's no change. There's no separating yourself from those relationships that have helped you to go down a road that has led to, you know, your demise. That has caused all these problems. And too often that's the case. Too often that's the situation. David does the right thing here in getting back with the Lord. He strengthens himself in the Lord. It's the same idea of of the prodigal son there who in the pig pen comes to his senses and he says, man, I'm not worthy to be my father's son. He wasn't thinking even about being restored into that kind of relationship, but I'm going to go back and just see if I can be, you know, his servant. And I'm going to tell him man, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. And and that needs to be right. And then he was restored. He received his sonship and everything that went along with it. David turned to the Lord brokenhearted in full surrender. And God was more than ready to supply David with the strength and the courage and the assurance that he needed. Now, note this. It says that the Amalekites came in and raided Ziglag. The Amalekites were some of the most brutal enemies that Israel had. They were savages and they had this reputation in battle that they would go and that they would attack by the rear. They were notorious for sneak attacks. And often you see, especially when like the children of Israel and other groups would be wandering out in a wilderness type of situation. Oftentimes what would happen is this is that the army would be out in front and the, the, the women, the children and the older people would be out in the, the back. You know, they would be in the, in the camp. Well, the Amalekites were notorious for going and raiding the camp and killing the women and the children and the older people to, to just throw the army into disarray. But here they come into Ziglag. They burn the city down, but they don't kill anybody. They take him captive. It was out of character for them. But I think in this, we also see again the grace of God. The grace of God in protecting David's family. So we pick it up in verse 7, chapter 30. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop and shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. And so David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook of Bezor, where those who those stayed behind Those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. And then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And so when he had eaten, his strength came back to him and for he had eaten no bread nor drunk no water for three days and three nights. And then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? Underline that phrase, if you would. I want to come back to it. And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Chesrolites in the territory which belongs to Judah in the southern area of Caleb. 
And we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? And so he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And then David attacked them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. And David recovered all. And then David took all the flocks and herds. They had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. God gives a promise to David. David does the right thing here. He inquires of the Lord. We see a contrast here between Saul and David as Saul doesn't sincerely really inquire of the Lord. David does. He inquires of the Lord. God answers and says, go for it. And he goes out and, and he, he comes back. He has this great victory and he comes back and nothing is left. Nothing is not recovered. The promise was fulfilled exactly, but it wasn't fulfilled passively. And I want you to note this. It was fulfilled exactingly, but not passively. And what I mean by that, David had a role to play in the receiving of this promise. God's promise didn't exclude David's cooperation, but it invited his cooperation. He had a role to play in this. And David cooperated with God, trusting in the promise of the word of God and recovered all. And so often that's the way it is. God gives us a promise, but he says, now you step out in faith and believe that promise. You act on that promise. And that's when the blessing comes. It's not when we sit back and say, like, okay, God, I'm waiting for you to do your promise. No, you step out. And that's what David is doing here. I love this story, though. It takes a lot to finally get David to this place where he comes to his senses, where all is restored. And from this point on, we see David. He's going to be on the right path and he's heading for his destiny. He's heading for that place that God has laid out for him. But he's had this 16 month detour and a lot has has happened in it. He almost lost everything. But God in his graciousness, God in his wisdom, God in his forgiveness, God in his love brings David back to this place. And I love what the Bible says that God has the ability to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And that's what we see that God does here with David. And God can do that with you. Maybe you've ruined a lot. Maybe you're sitting right now in the midst of a big mess. Can I encourage you tonight? Do what David did. Seek the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. In other words, you make it your priority above everything else to build up your relationship and work on your relationship with God and leave everything else. Leave the mess, leave the family, leave, leave, leave the friendship, whatever it is that has been destroyed. Leave that to God. Leave that to the Lord. Rest in his promise. And as he gives you opportunity, take those steps of faith to bring things to restoration and watch and see 
what God can do. Now, finally, in closing, this story of David going in, restoring everything, winning everything back, it reminds me of what Jesus did. You see, Jesus came to a world that had been lost, forfeited because of Adam's sin. And he brought it back. He bought it back. He went to war and he recovered that which has been lost. David comes back with the spoil. What was the spoil that Jesus comes back with? He told the parable that really gives us the insight. He said that there was a man who found a treasure in a field. And so what did he do? He went and bought the field so he could have the treasure. Listen, you and I were God's treasure. Isn't that a mind-blowing thing to think about? You are God's treasure. You're the treasure of Jesus Christ. He looks at you and he says, and he says, you know what? It was worth it to go to the cross. It was worth it. Your freedom, your life, it was worth it. It was worth it. One final note. In verse 11, or verse 13, actually, I had you underlined. David said to the Egyptian, this guy that they found, he said, who do you belong to? And where are you from? That's a good question for us to ponder tonight as we go our way. Who do you belong to? Where are you from? 16 months ago, if they asked David this question, we're not sure how he would have answered because he was in the wrong place. What about you tonight? Are you in the wrong place? Or can you confidently say, I belong to Jesus? I belong to my king. I belong to, to the one who redeemed me, the one who gave himself for me. That's who I belong to. In his kingdom, that's where I'm from. I hope so. If not, I encourage you, give your heart to Christ tonight. As he died to rescue you from the chains of darkness, from the pit of hell, from the stronghold of the enemy. And he's the God who restores. Let's pray. Father, we just rejoice tonight in the beauty of this story where we see Your gracious hand to come and restore David to a rightful place with You. That he might fulfill his rightful destiny. And Lord, even after such a, a big shortcoming, Lord, my heart is encouraged as I read this tonight to see that this didn't disqualify David from what you had called him to. And Lord, this speaks to my heart of what a gracious God that you are. So willing to forgive, so ready to restore. So willing to make things right. And Father, I pray tonight for anybody here sitting here tonight who finds themselves in some mess that they have made because of their sin. Lord, I pray tonight that they would make it their their priority. To make it their passion to strengthen themselves in the Lord. To begin to pursue you with all of their heart. 
and let you work your will. Your incredible restorative power in those things that have been broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. As we dismiss tonight, perhaps God's been speaking to your heart. Maybe you know you're not where you should be with the Lord. Maybe you know you're, you've never maybe even committed your life to the Lord. I don't know. God wants to restore you tonight. Up front here are some brothers and sisters available to pray with you. I'll be up here afterwards. If you want to get right with God, if you want to begin tonight strengthening yourself in the Lord, come and seek one of us out. We'd love to pray with you. May the Lord bless you. May you have an awesome rest of this week in the Lord, rejoicing in His graciousness in our lives. His ability to restore that which is broken. Let's close with a song.